Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And that's where Alex Ruiz would tell you we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and something, something, the ins and outs of your life. <laughs> I never do his part, so I can't say it. Um, the reason I am trying to do his part right now is because we had a gremlin eat the first 20 minutes of this episode after it was recorded, um, specifically my first 20 minutes. And that's very unfortunate, but I'm going to do my best right here and now to get you to where we actually have an episode recording. Um, so for one thing, no real douchebag buffer this time. I'm not just going to ramble at you for 10 minutes. Uh, we had an amusing anecdote about how I was pretty sure um, I witnessed an elderly couple buy a crack pipe at a local bodega. And... Uh, it was quite an amusing time, and it is pretty much lost to the, to the ages, so if, if that sounds just like the greatest story to you, I'm sorry that it's gone. What we are going to talk about here on this episode of Love-Hate Relationship, I've Got the Love, and I wanted to tell you and Alex about one of the greatest fantasy authors that I know about. That is a man named R.A. Salvatore. Now, it had been a minute since we had talked about uh, fantasy literature on this show. I think the last time was when I brought up the series Redwall. Uh, and so it was entirely appropriate today to talk about The Legend of Dritz Duerden, which is Salvatore's book series and literally what I graduated from Redwall for. So, David, if you're listening and you've never heard of R.A. Salvatore and you've never read Dritz Duerden novels, you're going to love this shit. Uh, Chris Trogat, if you are listening, dear boy, I highly suspect you would enjoy these as well. Um, we're going to talk about R.A. Salvatore, and you know, before anything else, I want to provide some context for the property before the author. The Legend of Drist is a 40-year-long, 36-volume book series that takes place in the Forgotten Realms. And it wouldn't be unfair to say the Forgotten Realms is the literary wing of Dungeons and Dragons, especially in the past 10 years when the two properties merged and the role-playing game partnered with the literary property extensively. And you know, to that point, Salvatore's fantasy books often read like narrated D&D campaigns and aren't, for fantasy lovers are incredibly engaging adventure epics. Uh, one of my absolute favorite novels is called The Promise of the Witch King. And it literally plays like this D&D campaign with this evil necromancer castle and this group of heroes who most of which are not seen before this book. And it's actually really convenient for them to fall into traps and, you know, fight demons and die. And it, it becomes a real grand adventure. Um, but if you're not a fantasy author like Alex, you know, I'm going to use... Him, once we get to that part of the recording, as an audience proxy for why I love R.A. Salvatore's writing without trying to contextualize it too much in fantasy. So, talking about R.A. Salvatore, uh, he was born in Leominster, Massachusetts in 1959 and was the youngest of seven children and uh, credited his high school English teacher with inspiring in him a love of literature. After reading The Fellowship of the Ring in college, Salvador began seriously pursuing writing as a career and worked as a bouncer until he got the ball rolling, which I really love. And so, you know, I want to mention a few things, and I'm going to do my first talking point, and then the recording will pick back up where uh, it survived. 
But the first thing I want to talk about is the inspiration. You know, I just mentioned Tolkien and the, fan, the Fellowship of the Ring, and it is so blatantly clear that Salvatore takes a lot of direct inspiration from the father of modern-day fantasy. You know, Salvatore's depictions of elves, dwarves, hobbits, although he calls them halflings, orcs, and just general fantasy society are directly lifted from the Tolkien template. Salvatore's first book, The Crystal Shard, features a malevolent presence inside a crystal shard, uh, and it acts very much like Sauron inside the ring. But beyond that groundwork, Salvatore worked to create so much more that it was all his own. You know, the series' protagonist, this character, Drizzt Duerden, and that is Drizzt with two Zs, and Duerden with an apostrophe, <laughs> is a dark elf. And Salvatore created an expansive and unique lore for dark elves, making them a wicked subterranean matriarchal race that worships this uh, demon goddess of chaos. But Dridst is the noble, heroic exception to his species. You know, the actual world of Salvatore's is all his own, from barbarian-filled tundras that are kind of Conan-y, to pirate coasts, to the monster-filled subterranean Underdark. You know, Salvatore is the perfect mixture of Tolkien fantasy and D&D fantasy. And that is just cheat codes for nerds. And it also inspired Alex to make this one parable. So Alex, take it away. What does this make you think? So there's... <laughs> okay, I'm about to show my ass on this podcast uh not for the not 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 for the first time certainly not for the last the one touchstone i feel i have in this that like the the thing that i'm picturing as you're describing a lot of this is an old hanna barbera show andy did you ever watch thundar the barbarian so i remember thundar the barbarian and for those of you who don't know, that was the, back in like the 60s, 70s when Hanna-Barbera made really shitty like th this was this was like or into the 80s too. This was like He-Man time type of animation where clearly it was the same animation cells being used and reused over and over again. It's produced very cheaply, but it was like their fantasy show. And there was a show called Thundar the Barbarian which was about this dude who was a barbarian and these two people he traveled with who were basically like girl and Chewbacca analog, uh, respectively. Um, it, it was it was bad writing. But the thing I remember about this was the whole TV show, um, they spend all this time traversing this vast land that somehow has like desert monsters but also mountain tribes of elves but also sea pirates and sea monsters but also underground caverns with dwarves and it just had everything and you and and everybody who thundar encounters is like you're a barbarian but you're helping us barbarians are crude monsters who just destroy things and he's like i'm a different kind of barbarian so in my head as you're describing all of this i'm just like okay so this is basically like thundar the barbarian but better written um i really can't say it enough think dungeons and dragons 
think a Dungeons and Dragons party and like the, the way that you have like, okay, this one's a human, this one's an elf, this one's a dwarf, this one's a hobbit, this one's a different human, but he's a barbarian. That's, that's the framework we work under here in Salvatore land. Okay. Okay. Now I know you're about to get into characters, so I feel like that's a wonderful lead in that I don't want to interrupt. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes. The next thing I do want to talk about, as a matter of fact, is the characters. And without getting too much in the weeds, like, Salvatore has a a natural talent. You know, he mentioned that he started, like, getting an interest in literature and writing in high school. Um, and the man's first degree was in like business administration or something, but he very quickly changed his major to actual straight up getting an English degree. So, you know, the man was as trained as a writer can be, take it or leave it. Salvatore has a talent and he knows how to write point of view and make you care about a character. You know, creating ethos, pathos, setting up a, a really perfect and clear mental monologue as somebody is giving you their point of view. And, and he makes these characters compelling or interesting. And, you know, the, the vast majority of the book series is from the point of view of Drizzt, the noble and heroic dark elf. But especially as the series goes on, um, he gets a little more like the way they do in Game of Thrones, where you'll have a chapter where all of a sudden this character is narrating. And, okay, two-thirds of this book are from the point of view of Wolfgar, who is that young, headstrong barbarian I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And even even when it's, when it's Drizzt, when it's the main character of this 36-volume series or when it's one of the secondary guys, or even when it's a random side character who is introduced and killed within the same, like, 15 pages, every character has a fully fleshed-out life and feels like a real 3D person. And it's it, it makes it interesting to read. It makes it... You, you want to learn about these people. You want to learn about the random pirate wizard who shows up from time to time and is kind of a dick. And you only see, like, through his eyes once or twice in the entire book series. But you're really glad when you do. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. You know, he knows how to set up a primary antagonist like it's a boss monster. Again, to to go back to D&D, he knows how to set up your Darth Vader, your big bad, but then also give Grand Moth Tarkin a moment to shine and give the lieutenant, you know, characterization and make them fully fleshed out and interesting and, and unique before they get killed by the heroes, inevitably. And it's, Hmm. it's... I can't okay. put too fine a point. Like if you like fantasy and you don't know these book series, they are a, a huge and, and awesome treat. And, and I guarantee you it's, it's been going on for long enough. It's been going on for 40 years. You will find characters that you fall in love with and like really engage with. And then, you know, it's a coin flip of whether or not they're going to die horribly, but if they die horribly, you're going to care. And that's, I think the biggest thing, you know, that's for all, for all the shit I give George R. R. Martin, you cared when Ned Stark died. And I'd say spoilers, but that is a 
either 20 or 10 year old spoiler, depending on if you're looking at the book or the show. <laughs> uh, the next sure. thing I want to get into is the action. You know, I, I made a point that this is a, a fantasy action series. This is very much swords and sorcery. And Salvatore is probably most well known in the you know fantasy community for writing some of the most technical, dynamic, and engaging fight scenes out of anybody in the business. Um, and I, I'm going to quote from him now. This is him in an interview talking about what it's like to write these fight scenes and how he does it. And, and Salvatore said, it's many things all wrapped up together in a proper package. Mostly a good fight scene has to start with characters. The readers care about without a sense of danger. What's the point other than that, writing a fight scene is about mechanics. It's got to make sense to people who know something about fighting, kind of like the science in a science fiction book has to pass a physics test. It's about emotion. Anyone who's ever been in a fight, sporting or for real, knows that you go to a different place in such a situation. And mostly, a good fight scene is about the pacing. I notice that my sentences get shorter. Paragraphs become single sentences or even sentence fragments. And characters are too involved in staying alive to muse about the meaning of life. Simply put, if your pulse isn't pounding with fear and sheer action, I'm not doing my job well. And I think that's a fantastic quote. I think that really gets to the point of everything. It talks about what I just did about you have to care about these fighters and what's going on. And then it goes into the mechanics of how he writes this thing well. And, you know, I'm not going to read from the text or anything, but in a in a Salvatore fight scene, there are examples of like, so, so Dritz, he fights with these two scimitars. That's what he's well known for. So he fights with two swords and a fight scene will involve okay. Salvatore describing this. Like, you know, Dritz stabbed forward with his left arm with his right. He parried an incoming sword, twisted it around the blade edge and disarmed the opponent before slicing with his left hand he moved backwards and parried on his right foot and jumped up to do a flying kick. Like, like getting into the mechanics of it. And here's what the left arm's doing. And here's what the right arm's doing. And here's what the bad guys are doing. It honestly gets to the point where I've almost like, it. it's almost lost me at times reading the books where it's like, okay, I, I get it. He's, he's doing this thing over there. He's doing that thing over there, but it's so much more, it paints such a better picture in your mind of what the fight scene is to hear it that way. Other than he blocked this one attack and he stabbed this other guy. And then he, he brought both his swords down and that's how he did the thing. And so, you know, I, I bring it up as a, as a positive. Sure. Well, and okay. So you and I are both comic book fans. And something that a lot of comic book writers talk about is the difficulty of writing a good fight scene, fight sequence, in such a way that it can be presented on a page in actionable ways. To have to do that on a paper page. Yeah. That is a skill, you know? That's... that's that's something that, especially if, you know, writing a good fight scene is like writing a good sex scene. It is the kind of thing that if it's done poorly, 
if you have some boring dialogue, a lot of people, if they care about the characters, are willing to sit through boring dialogue. If you have a boring fight sequence, that's not going to be the case. It's really not. You need something that grips. And you need someone... You know, you mentioning that he... the Or the point that he makes about caring that someone, like... Someone who knows fighting is going to be able to read it and see the logic of it. That makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. Because it is the kind of thing that you just get thrown out right. of Absolutely. if it doesn't work. I'm glad. And I thought so I you would. That. You know, yeah. And, and to wit, like... There has never been, and to my knowledge, there is no talk in the works of any sort of live action adaptation of these characters. You know, there's there's been a comic book adaptation, so you can see it mm-hmm. in that way. But everything about these guys has been either literal or in video games. And it, it, to, to just to be able to write something that does paint out the exact sequence of how a fight scene, this frantic, kinetic, quick moment goes... I think that absolutely is a skill. You're right. And so, you know, Salvatore uh, said that he worked as a bouncer as he was getting his writing career going. And I I just love this. I think this is so great. He claims that his time as a bouncer helped inspire him on how to write fight scenes, which just makes... I 100% believe that. I 100% believe that. And it also makes me want to... It makes me wonder how, like intense some nights god in front of whatever club salvatore was standing out in front of that he fought somebody enough or was at least around fighting enough that he like started taking notes and realized how to apply it literal literarily uh you know what i sure they say right what you know um you know, there's a reason why Ernest Hemingway was so good at writing bullfighting sequences, because he obsessively watched bullfighting when he was in Spain. And it's, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but there is something about when, when a novelist writes about their obsessions, especially if it's something you know they have a lot of experience in. It, it tends to work on a textual level, but when it's something as dynamic as a fight sequence, like, I've, sure. I've read a lot of bad fight sequences from people who clearly haven't been in a fight since grade school. I like the idea that the person writing my good fight you know sequences what? knows how to throw a punch. Knows that you use a knows that you don't use a closed fist, knows how to swing a weapon, knows what the sound of a bone cracking actually is. I agree. And it's, it, it does absolutely make for a more fun time. So I, I want to wrap it up here with, with one final point. And we've kind of talked around it a little bit and commented on it, but the, the final thing that makes me really love R.A. Salvatore is the commitment to what he does you know, I mentioned at the top, and, we, and we've talked about it, Salvatore's been doing this consistently for 40 years. The Crystal Shard, which is the first book of the series, came out in 1982. And the most recent book in the series, which is called Relentless, came out last July. <laughs> and we've talked about how niche fiction is one of the most... Um, lucrative 
and easiest uh, ways to like make writing your career. But I don't think it can be downplayed 40 years of these characters of this world. And do I still have you? Okay, very good. Okay, all right, just making sure. You still have me. Um, yeah, there, there came a point. I, I haven't read a Salvatore book in probably six or seven years. Um, just and, and, you know, going into um, this, it made me be like, shit, I've got to pick these up again. I've got to get caught up. There came a, there came a point. <laughs> Salvatore has killed his characters, some of them more than once, and always found interesting ways to bring them back. Um, and, and right where I stopped off, he killed everybody except Drizzt. He killed Wolfgar, the barbarian. He killed Caddy Bry, the love interest, Archer, badass. He killed Regis, the halfling. He killed King Brunor Battlehammer, the most fucking badass dwarf I've ever read about. Killed them all. And then in the next book found a way to be like the God of nature, put all their souls into new characters. So they are still the old characters, but they are also these new people. And this is the way that I will explore new stories and new like scenarios and then have them all wind up back with Drizzt. And I've talked at length about how much I hate legacy in, in comic books, especially, it, it, I think it also applies to literature, but if you're going to do it, that's the way you friggin' do it. So mm-hmm. he's, he's killed his characters. He's brought them back to life. He's made heroes become villains. He's made side characters become major characters. He has done 40 years of this and kept up a mostly best-selling fantasy series for 36 books. When other authors I've dragged on this podcast and I've mentioned earlier couldn't even do six. And I applaud that. (laughs) So salty. R.A. Salvatore has put in the work and I would argue deserves at least a good portion of George R. R. Martin's infamy. But whether 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 he gets it or not, Salvatore (laughs) is a titan of the fantasy literature industry. If you've never heard of the Forgotten Realms, if you've never heard of Dristuward, and if you've never heard of R.A. Salvatore, and you liked the Lord of the Rings movies, or you play Dungeons and Dragons, pick this guy's books up. You will love them. Last thing before we move on. If George R.R. Martin either gave his <laughs> blessing or died, would you want R.A. Salvatore to finish you Game of Thrones? Or uh, the so- uh, Song of Ice and Fire? He would be a very good contender. I would be incredibly like if if that got announced, like like take away my active decision of it. But if I read tomorrow, George R. R. Martin has passed on the franchise to R.A. Salvatore. I'd be like, oh, fuck, I'm reading the last two Game of Thrones books. I bet you anything they'll be better than the se- the TV show. And they'll come out in the next two years. Exactly. And then there will be spinoffs for the next like 30 because I... I can't tell if I've just seen a lot of uh, old pictures of the guy or if he just has really good genes. He's only 62. I think that's the other part of it. He, he started this when he was like 20. Um, hmm. The man looks great for 62. And I, yeah. I don't see him stopping anytime soon. <laughs> 
Well, let's hope that our curse does not affect him. Oh crap! I never even considered that. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna gonna run some sage along this computer and microphone or something. Oh Jesus! <laughs> well, speaking of people we want to have to be cursed, you ready to move on to our hate? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, Andy, as ever, I like to you know start off by getting a little bit of framework from you and uh, you like me, grew up with boomer parents. Indeed. Um, with the added wrinkle that yours leaned more conservative than mine. Indeed. So I have a simple question to you. What are your stories and or memories, if any, of one Dave Ramsey? So I gotta tell you, man, I remember listening to Rush Limbaugh in the car radio while my dad would drive around. Wait, we need segregated buses. This Obama's America. The NFL all too often looks like a game between the Bloods and the Crips without any weapons. There, I said it. I remember my dad watching the Glenn Beck show. You sent me this and my first thought was, is he related to Gordon? I have no clue who Dave Ramsey is. You don't know Dave Ramsey. <laughs> I don't. I really don't. Oh, my God. I gambled and lost on this one. Yeah. Oh, so I'm so surprised because Dave Ramsey, I feel like Dave Ramsey is the guy who has like four books on every boomer dad's bookshelf. And it's entirely possible that there are a couple on mine. Um I, ne- you know, next time, do me a favor. This is even for the show. Sure. Like, do me a favor. Next time you're hanging out with or talk to your parents, ask them just apropos of nothing. Like, hey, do you have you guys ever read or listened to Dave Ramsey? Just ask them that because I'm curious for my say. All of you in the audience, you will not. You will probably not get this answer unless we remember to go to touch on it again. But I am <laughs> fascinated that you have no okay you don't know Dave Ramsey this is going to be a this is going to be fascinating i'm i'm very excited to learn okay so for some basic background i i i'm operating on the assumption a number of people at least have encountered Dave Ramsey's name before but um just to give basic background so born in Antioch, Tennessee in September of 1960 to a family of real estate developers, David Lawrence Ramsey III is a financial advisor, radio show host, author, and businessman. Um, it, to summarize him, Andy, his whole shtick is he's one of these dudes who like publishes books about personal finance this is how your house should budget this is how you buy a house when you only have like this much money this is how you pay off debt this kind of stuff he has a radio show where people have called where people call in and ask him financial questions and he basically gives this kind of advice apropos of nothing i i've looked the man up and and just real quick he is a year younger than r.a salvatore and he looks a decade older well you know, it's all, it's all the evil. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Um, so for Ramsey's like background, he, he was a high school ice hockey player, which I thought you'd find amusing. Um, 
I do because Tennessee his... is not where I figure you'd have an ice hockey guy, but okay. You know, it snows in parts of Tennessee. It snows. You know, they're lateral to us, and it snows here. I'm sure they have ice rinks. Eh, go Predators. Uh, what? That is the uh, Nashville hockey team. Oh, okay, cool. I thought you were rooting for Matt Gates for a second. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, please continue. Uh, <laughs> so, um... Ramsey got his real estate license and began selling property at 18 when he was still attending the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And that is a feat that I would call impressive, if not for the fact that, again, his whole family was in real estate. Um, As a fun fact, and this is just something I didn't know this prior, but uh, I discovered it in my research. His aunt is Anne Ramsey. Uh, who is an actress known for parts in the Wonder Woman TV show, The Goonies, and in Rob Reiner's Throw Mama from the Train, the movie that both of us admitted we had never seen or even heard of. There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, She herself is the daughter of uh, the national treasurer for the Girl Scouts and an insurance exec. Okay. His uncle was Logan Ramsey, an actor who appeared in MASH, Mork and Mindy, Battlestar Galactica, and Andy. You may know him as Claudius Marcus in the Star Trek original series episode, Bread and Circuses, which is one of the few episodes of that, which is one of the episodes of that show that I have seen. (laughs) I love it. And yes, I I remember Apollo more, but okay, I, I, I hear what you're putting down. Um, I'm surprised you took the, you, you skipped the opportunity to mention Anne Ramsey is the evil mom in the Goonies. This is true. She is. I did mention she was in the Goonies, but I, but not her part. Fair enough. She was Mama Fratelli in the Goonies. So that is who Dave Ramsey comes from. Or at least that's tangentially where these are. These are his relatives we enjoy more because they went into television and film. True, but also money. There's money in this. Eh. A lot of this has to do with the fact that Ramsey comes from money. It's a lot of why I'm so pissed at. Sure. Okay. Um. So in the '80s, Ramsey amassed a four million dollars portfolio of stocks and real estate but had to promptly declare bankruptcy when a change in banking regulation meant that he actually had to pay on some of the $1.2 million of debt he had accrued to get that portfolio. Um, In the same year that he declared bankruptcy, 1988, he launched a financial counseling service, which is the kind of thing you can only do when you have family money to fall back on. Well, also, so to make it clear... He declares bankruptcy and then launches a financial counseling service. I'm not sure which one exactly happened first that year. I can just say that both happened the same year. I'm going to choose to believe it's my way because that's very Trumpian. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah. Um, so he launches this financial counseling services. And, and the story is he was encouraged by all the people in his church that he'd been giving financial advice to. Mm. And all of them were like, you should start a business where you do this. And that, and four years later, after doing this business, he self-publishes his first book. He also became the host of a, uh, on a local 
Nashville call-in show where he gave financial advice. He would later take over that Nashville show. He shared it originally with two other hosts. And I don't know if it's because he was just the most bombastic or entertaining or for whatever reason, it ended up becoming his show. Sure. Um, over the course of the following years, he would launch a finance course, wrote a finance column for the Gannett Company's um, different newspapers, nationally syndicated. Uh, that column was eventually dropped when it was discovered that he was fabricating the letters that he was responding to in his column. Um, he's published four more adult books and three books for children and had a successful show on Fox Business from 2007 to 2010. So real quick, I, I want to make a cheeky joke about, oh, I didn't know he got into erotic literature, but I'm too scared of what the fuck a finance book for children could be. Um, you know, I don't actually know if his finance <laughs> books for children or if his books for children talk anything. Actually, I'm Googling it right here because I think the first one, what is it? Dave Ramsey children's books. Children. I mean, books. I just assume, um, I, I assume because what, what else would you, what else would you write about here? Like what the fuck? Oh my God. This is, t- this oh is horrifying. God. Alex. If, Andy, if you're looking at the same oh my God. Oh my God. Financial Peace Junior. Board game. How to teaching kids how to win with money. Junior's Adventures. Super Red Racer. Battle of the Chores. I think he's trying to be a straightforward children's book author. And holy shit. Yeah, this uh This is horrifying. This is very upsetting um because he's he's not uh, even, he's not even grifting like those two idiots who made the trump kids book but anyway oh uh, <laughs> oh my god jesus none of you google that please for the love of god um <laughs> uh learn from our pain so Talk about what I truly hate about Dave Ramsey. Now, Andy, I really was banking on the idea that, like, your background would include some knowledge of Dave Ramsey. Because I really do feel like he's just everywhere. Um, And and to talk about his financial teachings of sorts. Like, he, he is a finance guy at the end of the day. He has these books. He's clearly investing. He does other businesses. But, like, to talk about his financial philosophies Mm -hmm. some of them aren't not terrible you know he's a proponent of the debt snowball method where you pay off smaller debts first and then you take that money to pay off bigger ones as you go gaining momentum um so like if you owe like if you owe student loans and credit card debt and mortgage debt and this that and the other um, basically pay your minimums on things um, that are very, very low interest and put as much money as you can towards your high interest and smaller debts. And then once those are paid off, take that same money you were paying and distribute it to your to to the next round of debts that meet those criteria. And, and, and so real on. quick, I, I desperately need to know if we like this or don't like this, the snowball method. You know, it's kind of controversial. I'll be honest with you. I don't hate it off the bat. Um, My biggest problem with it, honestly, is that um, 
I feel like for people with very, very little income, it's not necessarily sustainable. Um, which I'll I'll talk a little bit more about how a lot of this advice does not really apply to poor people. Um, but but you know what? That is a piece of advice that I don't immediately hate. I present it here as saying it's not bad advice. It's maybe not as universally applicable as he likes to pretend it is. But I don't think that's immediately bad advice. Okay, good, because I've been doing that for years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honey, you don't need me to approve of your financial decisions. I know, but if you were about to be like, and this is absolutely awful, I was about to be like, uh-uh. No. No, 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 no. I, I don't think it's awful. Again, like, people have run studies on it, and it's kind of always been a little inconclusive. Some studies come out saying that it's a very good idea. Some studies come out saying it's a very useless idea. Uh, there's no consensus about it. But I'd argue there's logic behind it. Sure. So I, I'm not, I don't, I don't hate that idea. That That's a piece of Dave Ramsey advice that he fucking swears by that I don't immediately hate. Hmm? That said, he also says things like, like he has a very strong recommendation against even having a credit card. Like okay. he will go up and do his seminars, and there's this whole thing about how, and, and this this is a this is a thing that he famously does. He goes, there are four. He'll he'll stand at the front of the stage during a seminar, financial seminar, and he'll pull out his wallet, and he'll be like, there are four pieces of plastic in my in my wallet. Here is my here is my debit card. Here is like some other like bullshit like a membership card to something here is my driver's license and here is my concealed carry permit and these are the four pieces of plastic in my in my wallet in dave ramsey's wallet mm. and it's it's like okay you recommend against having a credit card which is great if you can build credit via other means like paying off a mortgage on a house your rich parents bought you sure <clears throat> um Again, I cannot stress enough how much money this motherfucker comes from. Um, so there's a recommendation like that, which is patently stupid if you're not from the background he's from. He recommends budgeting, and, and I actually know some people who have done this. He recommends budgeting by keeping cash in envelopes for all of your expenses. So oh, here's the okay. cash... Here's the cash for your rent or your mortgage. Here's the cash for your entertainment budget. Here's the cash for your utilities. Here's the cash for this. Here's the cash for that. And like, if you don't use all your cash, you can carry it over to the next month. But that's but if you use up all your cash, then you're not using that. Like, that's that's an actual method of budgeting he uses. Which I don't know about you. Seems a little old fashioned to me. Well, that's that's how kids go hungry. As parents. Uh rigidly adhere to that is is my immediate thought yeah i mean that's that's some fucking 19th century advice that also by the way is fucking useless in case of an emergency by the way yeah. um but yeah i just that's cutesy to me like i hear that and i'm just like that's not serious advice that's what what the f using cash for everything in envelopes like it's it's you know what it seems like some hank hill bullshit yeah i i could i would watch that episode 
Which is, well, it's funny because there was an actual episode of King of the Hill where Hank explains their finances to Bobby because Bobby thinks that they're rich and doesn't understand anything about how money works. And he literally just hands him, like, a calculator and a notepad and shows the budget. And, like, Bobby sees the budget and he's like, that's what we spend on entertainment? That's what I spend on CDs every month? And Hank's like, yeah. And he just goes, oh, my God, I I spend the whole budget. Like, It's a very sweet moment in King of the Hill, like Bobby learning this stuff. But the whole envelopes thing is asinine. Sure. Um, you know, Ramsey recommends against taking on student loan debt, which is something we've railed about on this show. You know, that's 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 legit. Indeed. But he fails. Go ahead. No, I was just agreeing. Yeah, but he fails to adequately advise how the fuck poor kids can be competitive in a job market without college degrees or rich parents to pay for them. The biggest thing, the biggest thing that really just fucks with me about Dave Ramsey is he is so universally beloved across demographics. Again, my parents who are liberal Democrats, like Dave Ramsey, you know? I was talking to my mother on the phone a couple weeks ago, and I don't remember how we got on the topic of finance stuff, but she was like, you should you should listen to the Dave Ramsey show. I'm like, I'm not going to listen to the Dave Ramsey show because Dave Ramsey's A, a piece of shit, <laughs> B, his financial advice is stuck in the 80s. It's not feasible in the era that we live in right now it and 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 you know it it worked for its period of time sort of but it bothers me that he's so universally beloved when he is also when his advice just does not work for an increasingly like a growing swath of the population it does not work for actually poor people yeah and that's always the the rub isn't it you know somebody finds a system that works for them and and for the purposes of the scenario somebody of a more affluent status finds a way to make a thing work and then prescribes that this is the best way for this thing to work and does not think about the helping hands along the way and the backs that got stepped on that only that affluent person could do to get that you know this 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 guy seems like the patron saint of a 22 year old who buys a house outright but then you find out it's because they got like a loan from their parents or or their parents paid off all their college debt or, or some shit like that yeah i mean basically and and you know when we talked about when we talked about student loan debt we came out of that conversation saying there isn't really a clean solution here you know beyond forgiving a whole lot of people's debt and actually capping what colleges cost um which is stuff that i you know i don't necessarily know that i see it happening maybe we'll get some student loan forgiveness down but it's not gonna it's not gonna zero things out guarantee it and what's more it's just these these are solutions that don't address the core problems of these people it's it's the personal responsibility bullshit you know the notion that 
you know, people are poor because they're not smart enough. They're not, they don't work hard enough. You know, there's, there's a meme that I see circulating every few years where someone, someone, you know, talks about how geneticists are working on isolating genetic markers that can tell you exactly, you know, a, a, a predictable range of how much money a person is going to make over the course of their lifetime. And someone just straight up replies underneath it. You can already do this with a zip code. Yep. Because you fucking can. And it doesn't matter what Dave Ramsey's advice is. If anything, if you're one of those people with a zip code that falls in one of those worser areas, if you're one of the people in the zip code where your office is, Andy, yep, and people yep. are buying crack yep, pipes. I was just thinking that. I, I, you know, it's... Actually, to quote Dave Ramsey, you got other issues going on. I was going to mention this. In February of this year, he was quoted on a Fox News segment where talking about stimulus checks, and he said, quote, I don't believe in stimulus checks because if $600 or $1,400 changes your life, you were pretty much screwed already. You got other issues going on. To which I say, yes, motherfucker, that is what it is to be poor. Yeah. I work with people who live on $600 a month, if that. Like, these are my clients. And I work in public assistance. And, I'm, and, and I don't know how many of my clientele listen to Dave Ramsey, but it is, I, I would be earnestly surprised if it was not a double-digit percentage of them. That's how fucking popular this guy is with people he has no business preaching this bullshit to. Oh, boy. So, I would not be properly hating on one David Lawrence Ramsey III. <laughs> Which, by the way, is a serial killer name. Indeed. Um, if I didn't say a few things about who he is as a person. Um, first of all, his politics are terrible. He considers himself uh, both a social and fiscal conservative. He is also an evangelical Christian. Uh, not that all evangelical Christians are terrible people, but this one certainly is. Um, and I feel like it advises a certain amount of his shittiness. Uh to talk a little bit about how he conducts his business, a former employee sued the Ramsey Group for firing her because she was pregnant, uh, which, like, I don't even know what to say to that. That's just a piece of shit move. Um, he refused to close his offices when his workers tested positive for COVID, and he mandated that the serving staff at his office Christmas party with, during COVID... Uh, not wear masks or gloves, quote, because it would show fear. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't heard this guy because I'm surprised he didn't serve a cabinet position in the previous administration. You know, I truly don't know anything about what he said about Donald Trump. I, I truly don't. Um, it would not surprise he, he he is on Fox News a lot. Sure. 
he he had a show on Fox News for three years. Like, it would not surprise me if he was a pro-Trump guy. I didn't see anything one way or the other about about that side of his politics. That's almost more horrifying because <laughs> that means they were working outside of each other's influence. You know, it, it does happen. It really does. Um, you know, is at the end of the day, is Dave Ramsey destroying the world? No, but he's innocuous sounding enough that his unchallenged, superficial, and hella outdated advice is selling with people who don't see him as what I consider him to be. They don't see him as a Tony Robbins mm. or as a Joel Osteen. But really, he's worse because he's both of them combined. I can't stress this enough. And I know you're listening, Ma. Um, <laughs> my, my parents like Dave Ramsey. They don't like Joel Osteen. And I know my dad, at the very least, hates Tony Robbins. I don't know if my mom knows who he is. She might. She probably does. And I don't know if she has a strong opinion about him one way or the other. But I know my dad hates him. And I know neither of them like Joel Osteen, but they like Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey is what happens when Joel Osteen's particular brand of shite Christianity and conservatism meet Tony Robbins' Tony Robbins's guru-esque approach to personal living and to finance and to outdated notions of how economies and people function. I have no patience for this. And you know what? I'm straight hating on this man because he's popular. Because he shouldn't be. His advice is... You know, people like to talk about how Republican politics only exists to serve the business class. I don't even like to ever say that they only serve the 1% because the fact of the matter is if you're in the 5%, the top 5%, you're benefiting. If you're in the top 15%, you're benefiting. As much as the top 1%, no, but all the same. It is for the it is a party of the business class. And Dave Ramsey is the financial guru who's giving business class advice to people of the business class and people who will never step through the door of the business class, whether or not they follow his advice. That's kind of the saddest part, really. You know, it's you and I were listening to Patton Oswalt a while back, and I'm reminded of the Patton Oswalt joke where he's pretending to talk to somebody who voted for George Bush being like, Oh, you, you, you like Bush. Bush fucking hates you. You know that, right? You must be a billionaire. Because if you're not, Bush fucking hates you. You must be a billionaire yeah. if you're taking Dave Ramsey's financial advice. Otherwise, it's probably not actually going to work out in a beneficial manner. There you go. If you're a suburban boomer with a comfortable nest egg, which, you know, with all with all respect... That's my parents, admittedly. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're a boomer who's financially stable, Dave Ramsey's advice might work for you. Don't preach it to millennials and younger. And don't preach it to poor people. 
Because it doesn't help us. It doesn't. Oh, boy. On that dark note, <laughs> um, shall we get to our question? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead. And I know All you right. found this one, so if you want to go ahead and read it. I'm absolutely delighted to go ahead and read it. Uh, this is a weird one. Uh, you know, speaking this of finances, weird, I didn't even think about that. This is that, a weirdly I, topical one, I was about to say. I didn't, you know, I didn't even think about that. I scrolled through, I, I was between like four or five different ones, and I picked this one because I thought it was the least like one we've read before. Okay, so... This is from relationships.txt, links in the show notes. I'm going to preface this story by saying that my boyfriend and I are both in professional jobs on decent salaries. Um, This is, by the way, uh, the boyfriend is a 24-year-old male. I don't know if our asker gives name or or gives uh, gender or age, but uh, we'll assume roughly the same age and probably female identifying. Um, okay. I'm going to preface the story by saying that my boyfriend and I are both in professional jobs on decent salaries. So money is not tight. Since the beginning, I have insisted on always going halves on any date, etc. So there is no cause for tension there. We've been dating for a few months exclusively together for three weeks, and this is our first weekend away together. We're just going to a nearby town, one hour travel time, staying in an Airbnb, visiting one tourist attraction. Not an extravagant trip by any means. Although it seems he's excited to go, he was a bit hesitant at first and nervously asked, but what if we break up before the trip? I found this to be a huge mood killer given we are in the honeymoon phase of our relationship, but I told him that as the trip is only overnight and relatively inexpensive, less than $200, it wouldn't really matter if we just canceled if it came to it or I could take a friend. A few days later, I messaged him to suggest a restaurant I thought we could visit on the trip, and he said, very nice, but super expensive as well, and suggested we got takeaways instead. So I dropped the idea, as it wasn't worth fighting. Then he sent me a message explaining how he'd, quote, broken down the cost of the weekend so he could book the Airbnb, transport tickets, and tickets to the tourist attraction. He'd attached a spreadsheet with our names in it, literally breaking down the cost of everything to the cent with the final add-up of everything telling me I owed him $167.99. I'm not tight with money at all and would happily have just given him $200 to cover my share of the weekend or book some things each and let it all balance out without the need to quibble over minor costs like this. He's an accountant, so I get that he kind of does spreadsheets for a living, but this has ruined the vibe of the weekend for me. I'm his new girlfriend, okay, there we go, uh, going on a romantic weekend away, not a client, to send an invoice outlining every cent. It feels so procedural. Am I right to feel this weird slash unreasonable? So, Andy. <laughs> yes, Alex. Um, any ideas for names on this one? You ever seen the movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko? Oh, Oliver God, Stone. years ago, but yeah. I've, sure. I've never actually seen Wall Street, but I have seen the sequel, Wall Street, Monday Never Sleeps. Um, and a... What? Yes. It, it, you've seen the sequel <laughs> to Wall Street, but you've not seen Wall Street. I mean, I wasn't paying very close attention. I think it was on in a hotel, but yes. 
You're like the one motherfucker who's seen the sequel to a never-ending story, but hasn't seen <laughs> never-ending story. Like, Jesus Christ, Andy. I prefer the sequel to never-ending story, but neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a plot point in Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, um, where the girlfriend of Shia LaBeouf's main character, um, who is Carrie Mulligan, um, like makes a real big deal that like she doesn't want Shia LaBeouf becoming Gordon Gecko's protege and, and getting sucked up in greed is good. And, and you know, the entire uh, greedy lifestyle. And, and, and of course he does, and there's some problems there. So this is a little bit of a deep cut, but the character's name is Winnie Gecko and it feels very appropriate to this question to me. Okay. Winnie Gecko. This will be interesting. Oh my god, do I need to see this movie? It's, I don't think I need to see this it's, movie. But it's fine. It's I love Carrie Mulligan. It, it's it's Oliver Stone in a post two thousand world. Cocaine. Yeah. A post cocaine <laughs> world. Yeah. A post cocaine Oliver Stone. <laughs> so for for context here, that makes the boyfriend Jacob. Okay, so we've got Jacob and Winnie. Promise I'll get the money back. I don't care about the money, Jake. This is not about the money. This is about you and me, and we're not good anymore. And all right, so I, uh, I do you want to? Yeah, start? I, I, I kind of do because, like, you know, I it, it's so tempting to make a joke here and to pick on Jacob for this behavior. Um, you know, I'll say directly, am I right to feel this is weird and unreasonable? A little weird, sure. Unreasonable, maybe. Um, you know, you you mentioned how he, you guys had spoken that he was going to break down the cost of everything and he's an accountant. This seems to be his life. There, there are, are breadcrumbs here to this behavior. It's, it's certainly, um, you know, a, a bit of a red flag. I, I you know, I want to say there's, there's the, the urge to say, Oh, I bet Jacob listens to Dave Ramsey, <laughs> but I, I, I want to take this in a different way. I wonder if Jacob is neurotypical in some way. I thought the same. Okay. Thing. Well, that that's a little bit um, reaffirming because I, I don't mean it in any, any, you know, way other than seriously, this sounds a bit like at least slightly neurotypical behavior to be like, okay, no, we got to figure out what the things are and we got to figure out what the costs are. And, okay, she, th this needs to be ordered in such a way that it makes sense. And, and we had a conversation about this and we talked about how I was going to do a financial breakdown. So I'm going to do a financial breakdown. You know, this isn't a, this would be a lot more concerning if it came out of nowhere deep in a relationship, but this is a fresh relationship. This is a new relationship. And Winnie, you mentioned how like, the first thing when you guys talked about this trip, the first um, thought that Jacob had was, Oh my God, well, what if we break up? And that's a fair thought. And, and that's also just, it's interesting to, from the story, get a sense of what Jacob's priorities are. 
is this weird? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, certainly this kills the mood, but I don't think this is necessarily a get the hell out of there. I think this is, there needs to be some follow-up conversations. You need to learn a little bit more about each other. You need to learn a little bit more about Jacob and ask him directly why he is choosing to go about it in this way and explain to him that, you know, kindly, not, not super um, angrily, but be like, you know, I was really looking forward to this trip and you're kind of ruining the vibe. And I, I want to talk about that and figure out why. And maybe he doesn't even realize that he's doing it, you know? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you zero in on the potential of uh, neuroatypicality. Um, I'm going to say this um, up front. I... Oh, God. So when I place myself in Jacob's shoes in this question, um, the breakup question does feel off to me. Uh, I'm going to be upfront about that. Uh, but just about every other aspect of this makes a lot of sense to me. And this is speaking as a neuroatypical person who may have certain proclivities on um, certain spectrums. That's all I'm going to say about that. Sure. Um, I see in Jacob, like, okay, so Winnie says at the beginning that since the beginning of their relationship, which we have to remember is only a few months old. And they've only been exclusive for the last three weeks. Um, Since the beginning of the relationship, she has insisted on always going halves on any kind of dates or anything like that. And this is y'all's first weekend away. First trip you're taking together. With that background, I'm putting myself in Jacob's shoes. I completely see the through line between, okay... Winnie always wants to go halves on dates. Right. We're going on a romantic weekend together. That's that's a type of date. Okay. Um, how do I make sure that I ensure that we go halves appropriately and that I'm completely transparent about everything and that she understands that um, that I have uh, ensured that we both pay exactly half and so that she doesn't have to calculate all of that because it's her thing. Uh, let me make sure that I put together a detailed spreadsheet outlining everything to the penny. I'm an accountant. I'm good at that kind of thing. Let me take that off of her workload and send it to her so it's not anything she needs to worry about. This makes so much sense. <laughs> I know. I I, that, I know that it does. I, I, I can see the through line as well. Yeah. And Andy, you've known me half my life. This is not news yes. to you. Um, but, like, I see that through line. Is it weird? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It, or, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna change the word weird to atypical. Sure. It is atypical. Um, and it's, it is worth conversation, Winnie. It is worth you being like, hey, 
So you sent me this spreadsheet. You made that comment a bit ago about what happens if we break up. <sighs> like, I... I'm a little uncomfortable. My vibe is kind of thrown off here. Can we talk about this? Have I communicated something weird? How are you receiving my communications? Can we clarify that maybe? Like, you're you're still in a very new relationship and it's very possible you have a neuroatypical boyfriend. It's also possible that he's just, you know, kind of weird. Um, you know, all these are possibilities, but... The mistake that I see here, the biggest mistake, and it's a mistake you make twice, is when he makes the comment about breaking up, you kind of just rolled with it. Mm -hmm. And then a few days later, when he gave you this kind of weird response on the restaurant situation, you just dropped it and said it was, quote, wasn't worth fighting. Like, you aren't engaging. And when you don't engage, especially for neuroatypical people, especially for people for whom cues are difficult, you're shooting yourself in the foot, Winnie. You need to be explicit. You need to be direct. And you need to be willing. It doesn't have to be a fight, yo. It can literally just be... Hey, this is what I'm trying to communicate. Is this what you're receiving? Because this is what I'm receiving from you, and it makes me feel this way. I don't think you're trying to be malicious, but I want to talk about this. No, and you know, they, they mention, or at the very least, Jacob is is rather young. I mean, 24 is probably about as old as you can be, and someone else can still go, no, you're you're still young. You're you're not fully developed and socially cooked yet <laughs> um, it's as old as you can be and still be called young. yeah pretty much i mean that's kind of where i'm looking at it here but you know he's jacob's only 24 um there's no context for how many how much experience with relationships jacob or Winnie have um i think this is an opportunity to practice some communication and, you know, it's like Alex said, it doesn't have to be a fight. It it will probably be a little awkward to have this frank discussion, especially you mentioned you're enjoying being in the honeymoon phase, but you would at least be able to control the situation um, if you sat down and was like, okay, I, I want to work with you and, and get to the bottom of the motivation behind all of this. And if nothing else, that'll give you a better sense, depending on how good or poorly that conversation goes, on your prospects for the future with each other, you know? Yeah. Above all, just, you know, be kind. Maybe don't lead with, hey, are you on the spectrum? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. No conversation has ever gone well from that. But, you know, keep... Keep these things in mind, you know, it's still a new relationship, you're feeling things out, and fuck, he may not even know if he is or isn't. Like, you don't know that, but it's... Be kind. Assume the best of intentions. I don't... Oh, there's nothing in here that he's presented that sounds like it's malicious or bad. Yeah. Like, just, you know, talk to him about how you're feeling and let him know what that is. Let him know that he's not, like, an asshole or doing anything you know, 
ostensibly wrong, but he's not doing what you need. He can be doing nothing wrong and still not be doing what you need. Absolutely. There's there's room for the for there's room for growth on both sides there, I think. Straight up. And uh yeah, we'll post this up in relationships.txt and if you, you know, care to respond, let us know. Absolutely, yeah. And so dear listeners, if you find any um relationship issues on the internet that you want our question or if you want uh, blah, 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 blah. If you find any uh, anything on the internet, anything on relationships.txt, any relationship quandary out there that you want us to take a crack at, we do take uh, applications and we also take your questions. You know, it's it's not just we go on the internet and find something, but we're more than happy to provide real life advice if you trust us enough to get it. We we promise that we're perfectly unqualified, but we have the best of intentions. You can send those oh, questions sure. in to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. We, we did on the last episode. Absolutely. Uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom. Uh, I know I was a little hard on you this episode. I love you. Um, and I hate Dave Ramsey. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about it. Next chance again. There you go. Uh, <laughs> You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. You can submit your questions there. You can follow us to keep up with new episodes or whatever we're tweeting about. Maybe we'll yell at something new by the time that you guys get on there. Or maybe we'll find out that one of the people we talked about on this episode is dead. Um, Hoping it's Dave Ramsey. We'll see what happens. (laughs) I just want it noted that Andy said that. And not me <laughs> for once. Indeed. Um, oh, God. You can find me on Twitter at Jovocop2113. You can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction. You know, we, we briefly mentioned an Oliver Stone film. I think there's at least one Oliver Stone film on there. But if not... You guys watched one already. That's right. We did. You watched Conan. We absolutely watched the shit out of Conan and the Barbarian, which was pre uh, slash during Coke era Oliver Stone. Um, Early Coke era. Indeed. And we watch all fun, all, all sorts of fun, crazy cult movies on that. And that is me and the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find cult fiction, the same place you can find uh, the same place you can find love, hate relationship everywhere. Alex just mentioned. That's right. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at a underscore x underscore r u i z. Thanks for listening, y'all. Um, we we just love talking to you. Uh, please, as ever, as always, and eternally, tell your enemies. <laughs>